How can people who live in different worlds really talk with each other? Greg Ellison is Associate Professor of Pastoral Care and Counseling at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. In this episode, you'll hear about his organization, Fearless Dialogues, and his forthcoming book by the same name. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. All right, Greg, so you founded an organization called Fearless Dialogues. Can you tell me about the, the work that Fearless, Dialo- Fearless Dialogues is doing? So uh, Fearless Dialogues was born uh, shortly after the Zimmerman verdict in uh, 2013 when, uh, with the release of my book, um, shortly before uh, the book came out, I thought... Your earlier book? My earlier book, my first book. It's Mm -hmm. entitled Cut Dead But Still Alive. Um, the, The last chapter I wrote was about fearless dialogues. How can we create spaces and communities to talk about taboo subjects, particularly around seeing the folks in our communities who may be muted and invisible. And so uh, we, uh, I say we, it was a team of uh, colleagues and I, some friends, and we thought about how can we create this unique environment. And the book came out uh, about uh, a few weeks before the Zimmerman verdict, and we made a call to action. You know, as a professor at Emory who had written a book, I had instantly became a national expert on matters pertaining to African-American young men. So I did several interviews on NPR and, you know, the Associated Press and and local news stations. And I said, you know, it feels like people want to do more. They want to have some really constructive conversations because there's a lot on uh, our collective chest. And so uh, we had our first conversation and, uh, you know, in July of 2013, and about 400 people showed up. And it was a very eclectic group of folks. Um, of course, there are students and, and faculty because we're at Emory's campus and staff. Uh, there were some doctors and nurses from the hospital. But then there were some guests that we, you know, invited out. And so there were elected officials and um, parents, teen, you know, uh, teenagers, high school students came. Uh, but there are also some folks like foundation executives and, you know, UPS workers and some drug dealers uh, that, you know, I especially invited to participate in this conversation because they're members of this community who are directly and indirectly affected by police brutality. And so we had this very engaging conversation. And after we finished, folks lingered for another hour. And it became clear to us that, you know, these are conversations that need to happen more regularly. And that was when Fearless Dialogues was born. Um, And so since then, um, we have kind of concretized our mission. What we seek to do is to create unique spaces for unlikely partners to have hard, heartfelt conversations about taboo subjects. And we're built upon three pillars. The first is to see. And uh, the second is hearing. And then the, fir- the third is change. So in our kind of philosophy, it's not possible to have a constructive conversation if you do not see the people around you as humans with the capacity to contribute to the life of a community. So the first thing that we seek to do is to level the playing field through a series of experiments and extensions of radical hospitality to make people feel as if their voice, their complete presence is welcomed in the space. The second 
once we develop this base of seeing individuals, we move to how can we hear the authenticity of their story? So what are the necessary components to create an environment where people feel unencumbered to share what is most important to them at that particular moment? And then finally, once we have set those grounds of seeing the, the human beings with the real problems and the vitality and gifts in the room, and once we have established the rapport of um, hearing those authentic stories and the wisdom of the people who are in the room, then we go and we begin to envision. So I'm thinking about your book coming out right before um, the George Zimmerman trial. Yeah. And I'm thinking about you creating spaces for people um, to have these kinds of difficult conversations, people who might not otherwise converse with one, one another. How do you create a space in which that can happen while also acknowledging I mean, the Zimmerman trial is a perfect example of some of the power dynamics yeah. and the institutionalized dynamics at play. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me how you create those spaces as your starting point? Yeah. So, um, you know, we first of all, we recognize that whenever people come into a space entitled fearless dialogues, there is anxiety. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, we've we've recognized in our work that there are some very present fears uh, and, and we've noticed this. We've now worked with about 12,000 people in um, over 60 communities around the world. And that's working with everyone from educators and clergy persons to uh, high school students and gang leaders and, you know, corporate executives, corporate gangsters, if you will. Um, and so we recognized in this work that there are five fears that people, you know, entering into the space may uh, kind of bring with them. The first is the fear of the unknown. You know, um, I've never quite engaged in fearless dialogues in this space with these people, given the social dynamics that are happening at this time in our country. So there's an unknown that is present, and the name fearless dialogues is a bit anxiety-producing for some people. There's also, we've noticed, um, a, a fear of strangers, right? And you know, can you define what you mean when you say strangers? Yeah. So, in, in in and I write about this in the book. There are four different kinds of strangers that I've explored. Uh, the first is the public stranger, the person you bump into at Starbucks that you, you know, ride next to on the, the bus, or um, the person you see in a grocery store. These are public strangers, and we. You know, uh, I, I've been informed by the work of Parker Palmer on this. We we learn how to negotiate social space um, by kind of encountering people who are different from us. So, you know, you're on the subway and somebody swings and bumps into you. You don't necessarily punch them in the face. You kind of move over a little bit because you recognize that we're all crammed into this space together. Well, unfortunately, I think, Far too many people recognize that they're in these spaces, but they don't kind of make the necessary adjustments to welcome those people who may just be in that space temporarily. So they're public strangers that we could learn from. The second is um, a, a familiar stranger. And uh, Stanley Milgram was a social psychologist in New York, and he talks about familiar strangers, people who we may see, uh, on a regular basis, but we never take the time 
or the energy to get to know them. But there is this subtle bond just based on us being in common proximity to each other. And so um, he uses, you know, he studied urban phenomena. So he looks at, you know, persons that are on a subway platform who may have the same commute every day. They see these same people five days a week. But, you know, and, and we're in, you know, New Jersey where people use the public transit a lot. But there is this unspoken pact that we won't speak to each other until a crisis happens. So what he recognized in his studies was that, you know, he took a picture and he said, you know, do you recognize these eight people on the platform? Right. And the people who saw the picture who are regular commuters said, yes, I know person one, seven, six, four. Right. And then he add a, added a, another layer, you know, and he found out that uh, these people had these kind of imaginative concerns. When number four gets off of the subway, I wonder where he or she is going to work. I wonder where they live, what part of town, you know, they're on. When number three doesn't arrive, I wonder if she's sick. And so there is some sympathetic regard just that happens by being in proximity. But without even knowing each other's names. Without even knowing each other's names. And what he found is that when crisis hits, a sense of kinship develops between these people who have never spoken to each other. So we saw that in 9-11. We saw that in you know, natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, where we may live on the same block and we never talk to each other. You remember the blackout several years ago in New York? We may never talk to each other, but now we're united in a common struggle. And I know you and I'll, I'll protect you. I'll, I'll work on your behalf. So what we seek to do in Fearless Dialogues is create moments where familiar strangers who may work in the same corporate environment, who may work, who may go to school together, who may live on the same block. We kind of heighten the, the tension in the, in the environment so that they could bond and recognize, wow, we share this commonality, and I can be there for you in this moment. And so we, we just provide those small little nuggets. There are a couple of other strangers. Uh, Robert Dykstra here at Emory, I mean, I'm sorry, at Emory, at PTS, mm -hmm. um, has written about intimate strangers, people who enter our lives in crisis moments that we can be deeply intimate with, um, but we may never see them again. He uses the example of chaplains. In hospitals who, you know, they may enter the life of a person in their most traumatic moment in their life. And that person can feel unrestrained, unrestricted in sharing their most intimate truths, knowing full well they will never have to see that person again. We do it on airplanes, right? How do we learn from intimate strangers, right? And so we seek to kind of create environments and fearless dialogues for people to say, I may never see you again, but I value your story enough and it can teach me. And then finally, there are the strangers within. The voices in our head that rumble around in our psyche that teach us from our soul until we begin to say, I don't want to listen anymore. So how do we cultivate the inner world of people who say they want to be 
caregivers to others, but they're unwilling to look at self. You know, we we just left a session here and we did this experiment and one of the participants shared with me, I'm very comfortable in looking lovingly at the people that I am seeking to support, but it's very difficult for for me to receive someone looking lovingly at me. What is your inner world saying in that moment that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to work tirelessly to build community, but I'm not willing to receive the love that can regenerate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we seek to do is to create these environments. This is a long way. Maybe I'm tired. I'm giving these long answers, but we seek to create an environment where people can interact with public strangers and and familiar strangers and intimate strangers and even the stranger within that they might get to know themselves and others around them in a more authentic and uh and wholesome way the 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 third fourth and fifth um fears that we've noticed so it's the fear of the unknown the fear of strangers the fear of plopping how often do people speak their most authentic truth and then it plops on the floor and everybody stares at it in silence? That's happened to me in a classroom. You know, I've gone out on a limb it just happened as to a me student in an, interview. in an interview, right? It happens to people in boardrooms. It happens in families uh, around kitchen tables. You share, you take a risk and you share your most authentic truth and then it plops and everybody looks at it and nobody says a word. It's a violent act, according to this um, master educator by the name of Jane Vella. And, and according to Vella, plopping is violent. So that silence... It's, it's, it's not only a silence, it's a silent sing, right? And it's not necessarily about the words that are being spoken. It's about I don't have the, it's, it's, almost, it's, it's, it's almost a valuation question. Do I value the person that's speaking enough to respond to their comment? It's not necessarily about what they said. You know, I, you know, I experienced it. I wrote about it in the first page of my dissertation. In a classroom, in my first doctoral class, down um, in the basement of the chapel here. You know, I, I was a doctoral student. I figured, hey, I'm here for a reason. Somebody saw fit to admit me. I did the reading, <laughs> you know. So I go out on a limb and I share my truth. And it's almost like that Charlie Brown, and wah, 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 wah. And I, I could feel myself outside of myself, looking around the table at the blank faces. And then when I finished speaking, what I thought was pretty profound, those deadpan faces returned to a state of liveliness and the conversation continued as if I had not spoken a word. And it felt like blood was on the floor because it was only 20 minutes into the first year of my doctoral study. So now I'm wondering, what are the next four, five years going to look like? And then, just a few minutes later, somebody said the exact same thing I said. And they said, wow, that's brilliant. That's violent, right? Because then I recognized that I'm invisible in this space. 
It wasn't about the words you said. It was not about the words that I said. And so, you know, for me, what we seek to do in Fearless Dialogues is to create avenues for people to share their truths, but their, their whole self is appreciated. We see them, all right? And so after we have faced those fears of plopping, then you have the fear of appearing ignorant. And so these five fears. That's a big one in a place like oh, this. Oh, man. You know, I'm a professor, right? And, you know, the, the fear of appearing ignorant happens in classrooms and boardrooms and on television with punditry, right? And so those who fear appearing ignorant, according to Parker Palmer, feel spaces with empty words. They just say anything to feel the space, but it has little meaning to it. And so as a professor, we see this, I'm grading finals now. Students who really didn't do the reading and who haven't taken the time to kind of wrestle with the material, they write long, 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 long papers that really trail to nowhere, right? Professors, pastors, <laughs> right? Who really have not done the work go on and on and on fear of ignorance fear of ignorance they're filling the space with empty words they don't allow you know the thing that insulted me most as a student was to be in a class and not have room for questions you know you can fill the space with your words but you 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 crowd out mine you know so how do we create a place where people can authentically share their truth right the fifth fear and each of these fears structure the book, you know. So there's a chapter on the fear of the unknown, the chapter on the fear of stranger, chapter on the fear of plopping and appearing ignorant. And the fifth, which I lectured on today, was the fear of oppressive systems. That the system is so large and seemingly overbearing that any small change that I could create would not make a difference. It's immobilizing, you know, and for some people, it becomes a question of why even bother. For me, as I began trying to articulate this last chapter, and I think it was the most meaningful of the book, it really brought out questions of vocation. Um, and how are... Of your own vocation or? Of my own vocation, uh, but particularly around activism. You know, um, there are some systems that say that there are only two or three ways in which you can perform activist-oriented service, all right? There are desirable forms of protest. You can do a sit-in as long as you don't block the highway. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can do a march as long as you have certain permits. You could write your congressman, blah, 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 blah. Desirable forms of protest. And then there are other forms of undesirable insurgency. You don't block the highway. You don't bear arms. You don't, you don't, you don't, right? What I began to reflect on is 
there are far too many people that are trying to cram their ideas of how to serve a community into one of those very narrow boxes. Either the acceptable or the unacceptable forms. Either the desirable protests or the undesirable insurgency. What happens to the millions of people in the middle who are uncategorizable, right? So describe one of those people. Me, (laughs) right? I am a... So the question I ask in the chapter, right, is what good is a behind-the-scenes public intellectual? Because I felt that way. What good is a prophetic preacher with no pulpit? What good is an activist who rarely finds a, a picket line? I consider myself to be a scholar. I consider myself to be a minister. I'm an ordained clergy person. I consider myself to be an activist. It's who my parents raised me to be. But I do not fit neatly into any of those three categories. It's a question of vocation. But what happens when we begin to define our vocation through negation? I am not a scholar like W.E.B. Du Bois or Cornell West or Toni Morrison or Ralph Ellison or Donald Capps. I am not, right? What if, what if we solely define our ministerial vocation through the lens of I am not Starsky Wilson, I am not Tracy Blackman, I am not Parker Palmer, I am not, you know, what if you, what if you begin just to, I am not Rahel Tesfamaria, I am not Black Lives Matter, I'm not Martin Luther King. What happens when you limit yourself of who you are only by defining who you are not? Because there are oppressive systems that say, if you're going to be a scholar, you work this way. If you're going to be an activist, you fit into this model. If you're going to be a minister, you do this. What if you are all three? And that's what began to really wrestle within me. So it looks yeah. like you're trying to pull to pull away from this kind of fragmented identity. Oh, that yeah. We, we try to di- define ourselves in these narrow ways and try to bring some wholeness back to the way that Without we engage question. in Without relationships. Question. I mean, because, you know, there are costs to living a divided life. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm quoting Parker a lot. We're going to see each other. We're working together in a couple days. Um, Parker's been a good friend and mentor to me, but he, he talked about the Rosa Parks moment. And it, it's been very uh, instructive to me over the past couple of days. He, he talks about Rosa Parks and when the bus had filled, you know, in December of 1955 and the, the, the white section was full and they moved to the back of the bus and she's sitting in the black section of the bus. I just threw air quotes up and, and, and then the bus driver comes back and says, I need you to give up this seat. And she looks at him and he continues and say, if you don't give up this seat, 
I will have to call the police and get you removed. And her response was meaningful to Parker and it's even more meaningful to me at this particular time in my life. Her response was, you may do that. Wow. I mean, like, you know, because it, 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 as, as Parker interprets it, and I agree, she is saying, you may put me in stone and steel seal, you know, in a stone and steel cell, but I have freed myself from your system by standing upon my integrity. And so he asked this question, when have we conspired in our own self-diminishment? To live a divided life, to put my activism and my scholarship and, and, and my ministry all in separate quadrants, right, or in separate sectors, is to diminish my sense of self for the well-being of others who say it's more comfortable if you look this way. No. If you navigate this space in one way and this space in exactly. another way. Exactly. I mean, God did not create me as a divided person. Why should I conspire in my own self-diminishment for your well-being? All right, so I want to ask you, you describe yourself as a craftsman of care. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I create spaces like Picasso and Stevie Wonder and Michelangelo. Spaces for people to see themselves more deeply and spaces for people to have hard conversations. Whether I'm in a classroom, a community center, at the table with my children, I'm creating space. And I think that is a gift that God has given to me. And with years of contemplation and writing and therapy, right, I have come to grips with this is who I am. And it is not this is who I am not. And it is fulfilling, liberating, scary at times, right? Um, but it does afford me a sense of assurance that I am authentically me. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.